Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 273 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I'm freaking out that you're here today because today I'm talking to Renee Nicholson, and this is a show about using writing as medicine, as actual medicine. And I could have talked to Renee for another six or seven hours, I swear to God. It's so good. Okay. So hold on to your hats. That is coming up um, in much lower news, just news that's happening around here. What is going on? Well, I have been continuing to revise, replenish. It is it's working. Uh, some epiphanies that I've had about the book are working and I'm getting really excited about publishing it. Uh, you may have heard me talking about this before, but I, re- I really want to self-publish this one. I had talked to my um, agent about perhaps taking it out and I may have one more final conversation with her about it, but I have uh, been having some success with A Life in Stitches, which is the memoir that I repackaged, republished when I got the rights back this year. I, I put it up and by I, I mean my assistant, Ed, um, did all the publishing stuff for it. And we put it up a couple months ago and it was, a, it was an okay cover. I did the cover myself and I'm okay at covers. I'm better than the average non-graphic designer at doing covers, but I wasn't totally confident with it. And Ed, who always tells me the truth, Ed never stopped. He's like, you know, could you maybe work on something that isn't so clip art looking? And I was like, I know, I know, right? That's the thing. It's such a cute cover, but it looks like it's clip art. Uh, Those of you who don't understand a reference to the clip art 90s and early 2000s, you're really missing out. So I played with a bunch of other covers and I tried something that I have never tried before. I tried using uh, the evil Facebook because Facebook is evil. Let's just say that. I tried using Facebook as a place to test my covers. You can do that. If you put ads out there and you put up six or seven ads for six or seven different covers, if the ad is identical and is a, if your ad set is identical in all ways, except for one, which is the cover of your book, it's an automatic way to find out. It's, it's this amazing, inexpensive way to A-B test, to market test a cover. So I put up um, a generic picture of hands knitting, a cute picture of hands knitting uh, that I got on a stock site and then put up the different covers. And over the course of about six days, um, Two were clear winners, not the original one that I had up there. Um, And then after a couple more days, one was the clear, clear winner. So we changed the book uh, cover because we can do that in self-publishing. Excuse me if you're watching on the YouTube, there's something in my eye and I don't feel like pausing. Um, So we changed the cover. We got the audiobook cover made and up and starting. So that's in production, or actually it's with Findaway right now, trickling through to all the other vendors. And I know that Audible... Uh, via ACX will take forever. And I'm really hoping it goes live before Christmas because that would be great. Then I, I'm I'm waiting to push this out to my readers as the 10-year anniversary edition with extra bonus content until the audiobook is live because the audiobook is what they've always wanted. And as you know, if you listen to this, I spent a while doing this audiobook myself and I'm really proud of it. Okay, but here's the thing. Here's where I'm going with this long-winded story. Uh, that ad started to sell copies of the book and the ad is still selling copies of the book. The ad is pushing sales so that it is now number two in knitting. It hit number one for a minute. It hit number, I think it's at number three in LGBTQ memoir. It's at number nine in uh, uh, creativity. Oh my God. This is where I've wanted this book to be. And I'm not spending a lot on ads. What it's doing, I'm spending between $25 and $50 on ads a day, which is is why I never do this because it's low 
that is low in terms of spend on Facebook ads. And I don't want to give Facebook my money, but right now I'm happily giving Facebook my money because um, it got onto these lists and now it is just kind of selling organically and it's selling a lot of copies. All of this to say, I want to do the same thing with Replenish or whatever that book ends up being named Um, because it's working. It's working. God knows that when Rachel jumps onto a bandwagon, it crashes. So Facebook will probably be taken out of, like, if you, if you hear that Facebook has died, that was me finally running a Facebook ad. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun to play with the marketing of it. I'm having a good time with that. So that is what I've been um, thinking about right now in terms of replenish as I revise it. Also getting very excited about writing the next novel. And uh, what else? I feel like there was something else I needed to share with you. Um, I'm pre-recording this, so I don't know if there are any slots left in 90 Days to Done. But if you have been on the fence, um, you can go check it out. Uh, it always sells sold out when it sells out, uh, rachelheron.com slash 90 days to done. And if it has sold out, you can always put yourself on the list that is right there to be notified first next time when it opens. Um, yeah. So that's, that's all that's happening around here. It's, uh, been, it's been fun. I have been having fun and getting things done and, having incredible guests on the podcast. Oh my gosh, I have um, more to come. I'm really backed up in the podcast right now. I'm almost tempted to start releasing them twice a week uh, so that some of the people I have talked to don't have to wait three months before their episode comes out because sometimes this is time dependent around a book launch that they're having. So I don't know what I will do with that. But today we get to listen to Renee. I hope that she helps inspire you the way she did me. Uh, in reminding us that our books matter and that writing matters and that, and that the words we move around on the page matter in such a huge, huge way. So um, please get some of your own writing done. Come find me on the internet. Tell me how it's going and enjoy this interview. Okay, my friends, we'll talk soon. Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write. And you'll also get my stop stalling and write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. Well, I could not be more pleased to welcome to the show Renee K. Nicholson. Hello, Renee. Hello. It is so nice. To, I'm so glad to have you. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Let me give you a little brief bio. Uh, Renee K. Nicholson splits her artistic pursuits between writing and dance with scholarship in narr- narrative medicine. I don't know why I wanted to say it narrative. Narrative medicine, which I would love to talk to you about. She is associate professor and director of the Humanity Center at West Virginia University. An award-winning writer, her books include two po- collections of poetry, Roundabout Directions to Lincoln Center, and Postscript, a memoir and a memoir and essays, Fierce and Delicate, Essays on Dance and Illness, and the anthology Bodies of Truth, Personal Narratives on Illness, Disability, and Medicine. So welcome. Today, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit. Well, I want to talk to you a lot of it about writing, but fierce and delicate is something that is so exciting to me. And we're going to come back to it. But first of all, um, I've seen it described as a fractured memoir in pieces. And I am passionate about memoir. I teach it, I write about it, I write it. Could you tell us what that means, a fractured memoir in essays? Sure. So I attempted at one point to write a linear-ish memoir, right? I mean, as much as memoir actually is linear. And so, um, you know, I, I, it didn't work for me. I didn't remember things in that way. So then I was like, well, you know, let's play around with essays. And I had written one essay that I thought I was going to expand into the memoir and that didn't happen. It just worked better in its form. Mm. But as I started writing these pieces and some are very short and, and others are really quite lengthy, what I realized is that 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 I did have a through line, you know, the same way that sort of novels and stories work where you have like sort of the organizing principle, like I had the through line. <laughs> what I didn't have was just one approach. And that some some 
things kind of stayed with me sort of like an old family film, right? You get, you get to see things sort of unfold a little bit mm-hmm. over time and other places were really like a Polaroid, right? <laughs> or it's kind of a quick, That's a good little, way to say it. you know, you get into it and here's the thing and it develops and you move on. <laughs> right. And, but they were connected and that they were telling a, 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 the story of a certain part of my life and really two parts of my life. Um, the dancing part and then the post-dancing part. (laughs) And so fractured also felt like the right way to describe it because I had this one way of being in the world. And then I was diagnosed with a chronic illness and I had a totally different way of being in the world. And that was like a fracture point for me. Um, Now that I have a little wisdom to look back on it and to see like that, Sometimes the things that we fill into the break in a fracture is actually really beautiful and interesting and meaningful. Oh, I so. love that. I also love this idea of the fractured narrative, but still having the narrative through line. That is something that I, I believe all good books need, you know, apart <laughs> from some, you know, two in the world, high literary that don't, you know, just are put together in whatever way. But um, I just put down a very famous memoir, which is told in a linear format. And there was no narrative through line. This person mm-hmm. did not change or grow or experience um, in any way. And I, and I put it down about 75% of the way through because I was like, she's not going to catch up. Um, <laughs> and I think sometimes we get really married to this idea of it has to be linear mm-hmm. because after all, that is what we know. That's how we move through the world. We start at A and end at Z. Um, but to take it apart like that, kind of deconstruct it and then put it back together with that narrative through like, was that as satisfying as it sounds? It really was. And what I realized too, and I love that you're talking about this because it's it's so mm-hmm. fun to kind of like unpack and untwine. Our, like we go through life in like start at A and at Z, but our memories are the yeah. governed by way different logic. And I would find things from earlier parts resurfacing later. And there was that kind of back and forth because our past selves are always going to inform our current selves and probably somewhere in there are hints to our future selves. <laughs> um, and you know, when you start to see like in, in, especially in revision where those touch points are and, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, I really, I need to develop this more. And sometimes I'm like, no, you need to just leave that alone. (laughs) Walk away from the touch point that emerge from the writing itself, because that is your memory being smarter than you. Oh, I love that. What do you feel? What do you, I know we're just diverging from everything right now, but that's how do you feel as a memoirist? Because this is something that really freaks me out that um, they've kind of proven that every time we touch a memory, we are affecting it in some way. We are changing it a little bit as a memoirist. How do you feel about that? I actually feel pretty good about it because that's my, my imagination is intact because, you know, Every time you come to something, whether it's your own memory, whether it's your favorite book, whether it's music, right, you're experiencing it slightly different each time, Mm. right? It's never quite the same, but somehow we've gotten in our mind, like it's only going to be truthful if you can tell it from the exact moment, the exact way you lived it when you were seven, right? (laughs) And I have thoughts about when I was seven and they are different now than, you know, when I wrote about them 10 years ago and they will be different 10 years from now. And none of that is my seven-year-old self. And all of that is my seven-year-old self, right? Blowing my mind. (laughs) The problem that I've had thinking about this whole thing, you just kind of solved. It's the whole thing. You can never step in the same river twice because the river has changed and you have changed and there's nothing wrong with that. That is the way it should be. Right. You know, I think sometimes this is why like hanging out with some, some of my friends, um, you know, I work on a college campus and I have a lot of friends that are scientists, right? And scientists are great because you think they're going to be like super, super discreet and they never are. I love that about scientists. Um, And they, you know, affect me as a writer in wonderful ways, right? 
Um, but if you talk to physicists about time, like, <laughs> you know, um, you're going to go on a wild ride and even like biologists, right? Like biological time is way different than linear time in a lot of ways, right? Um, two similar organisms can have very different trajectories, right? And they're like, yeah, mm. this is what happens. And we, you know, we, we study this and understand it kind of more on a continuum, right? And then you get into, you know, the, the memoir world and it's like, oh, it's going to be, and you got to get it right. And you got to whatever. And I'm like, well, right from where, right. At what point in the timeline, right. <laughs> that is so much more of an accepting way to look at all of this work we do rather than this hard and fast judgmental way. I feel like as a memoirist, I have sat in that spot and I see my students a lot sit in that spot of judging themselves for not getting it exactly right. It, it's, that's really, really beautiful, Renee. You're freaking me out. You. <laughs> this is so good. You know, I love, I love that, you know, you're talking about your students because so much of what we're doing, we then impart to our students. And yeah. when we kind of give them permission to yeah. swim around in it a little bit, we're actually also giving ourselves that permission, which is yeah. you know also really useful. And I, I also am like, is it, is it still nonfiction? If you are trying to imagine what your life could have been like, if things had turned out different or what your life might be like in some future, because we think about those things in our actual real life, right? Mm -hmm. Daily. We wonder and we unpack and we, we like, you know, create the alternate timeline if, you know, we're a movie and, you know, why can't we write about those things if they are actually informing who we are right now? And to me, like, that's why the, fra- I mean, maybe that's why the fractured memoir works for me. This idea yeah. that, you know, things can be discrete and whole together. I feel like more of us should have scientist friends for all of these reasons <laughs> that we're talking about. They can be discrete and whole together. My, one of my astrophysicist friends is like, every time I talk to her, she helps me see the world in a more holistic way. Um, Not in a more scientific way, but in a more holistic way. Well, you know, I think that the scientists have something in, in common with like Keats idea of negative capability and this idea that you hold things in parallel, right? Can you explain Um, negative capability for those who have not had English class for a while, which is one of my, it's my favorite Keats thing. So here, here's going to be like Renee's lay term, uh, <laughs> negative capability, and all the poets are going to come out and be like, you totally get that wrong. But, you know, I think what he's getting at is there are things we just can't always explain in the world. And sometimes those things seem wildly in conflict and it's okay to have them both together. Yes. That's Renee's wildly. I love that. <laughs> Everything doesn't have to be explained. Everything doesn't have to fit together. Everything doesn't have to fit things. Contradictions are allowed. Right. In in my world, contradictions are encouraged. Right. You know, it's something that I wrote about illness in the book, and it's something I've talked about a lot just with people um, and thought about a lot is this idea, like a, a, a phrase commonly used, a cliche is everything happens for a reason, mm-hmm. but really most things happen beyond reason. And it's really us figuring out what to do with it. Right. Yes. <laughs> we impose reason on things. <laughs> this seems like an excellent place to move into my question for you, because I'm absolutely fascinated with this about, uh, can you talk to us about narrative medicine and the way you have used it in your, perhaps like where you came to it and, and how you use it now? Right. Yeah. So narrative medicine was something I was doing before I even knew what it was. And that was, um, you know, really giving voice to an illness experience, right? And also understanding that um, by giving myself voice, it means like a whole voice, not just the role as patient. Like I'm a whole living, breathing person mm-hmm. with all sorts of roles in this life and all these things that I do and a past that informs me and a future that will unfold, right? And when I first started writing those essays, I had no idea what narrative medicine was. It actually unfolded because I started working with a man who had ALS and his palliative care physician 
called me and they didn't know what palliative care was. Well, I had to Google it, which is, you know, um, often end of life care, but it's really caring for very significant illnesses. Um, and it cares for the symptoms in a way that brings relief to the patient. Is that right? Right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Not, um, not necessarily always focused on fixing, but relieving. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's less, it's less about curative and more about like, how are you going to function every day? Yeah. How are you going to yeah. still kind of, you know, live in this world with the things that your body is doing, but still, and a lot of palliative care physicians are awesome because they're really into meaning making. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I get you guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't get you guys, but I totally get you guys. So this palliative care physician calls me I'm Googling ALS. This is pre ice bucket challenge. <laughs> I'm Googling um, palliative care. And I'm like, why is this man calling me? And he has this patient and when he's asking his patient his fears, it's usually all medical stuff, right? Are are things going to hurt? Am I going to be in pain? And this man says, I really don't think I'm going to get to finish my memoir. Mm. (laughs) And his reasons for wanting to write a memoir were not like the typical writer reasons. He wasn't a writer per se. He was just somebody who had lived a rich life and he wanted to leave that for all the people he wasn't going to get to know. He wanted to share his story in his own voice. And that compelled me. So I said to this palliative care physician, you know, I don't know if I can help you, but I have to meet this man. So I start helping him and I'm just sort of figuring things out. And then I'm like Googling all the time again, like writing with patients, writing with dying people, writing with ALS. Mm -hmm. And I kept coming back to this concept and this program in narrative medicine. And it actually came out of Columbia University, Mm -hmm. this like amazing woman. Okay. Talk about like... (sighs) I feel like a slacker now. So she's a general internist at Columbia and she starts. <laughs> no pressure. Right. Right there. Bar set, right. <laughs> that, that, that could be it. <laughs> right. But she starts taking graduate classes in literature because she loves to read and ends up also earning a PhD in literature. She's a Henry James scholar. It was like, right. <laughs> Mind blown. And she started to see that the things that she was um, discussing and reading and researching and talking about um, and the literature side was influencing how she was working in the clinic. And she started to collect people around this idea and she named it narrative medicine. And, and I love the way she describes it because she says the care of the sick unfolds in stories. <laughs> That made sense to me. I was like, all right. So I get on a plane, I go to New York city and I go to this weekend workshop. And then I'm like, where, where has this been? Like, it just, you know, really gets me. And, and so I start, um, you know, I go, I, I return to Morgantown, West Virginia, where I live and I help this man finish his memoir and, um, I get really close to him and his family. He was such an interesting man. And one of the interesting things about him is he was the associate dean uh, for medical education at West Virginia University School of Medicine. And so they have this big memorial celebration of life for him. And the family asked me to read from the memoir. Um, Oh, wow. What an honor. Yeah, it was really touching. And they felt like they couldn't. And they were like, you know, you were there, read from the memoir. So I'm in this big auditorium. And it's standing room only. And I read and I look up and it's just a sea of white coats, right? And everybody in there, little, and um, you know, clearly, you know, touched many lives. So then people start reaching out to me um, with emails that in any other scenario would be creepy. Dear Renee, you don't know me, but I know you. <laughs> I was at Jamie uh celebration of life. Right. And, and so he has this book and you know, the family decided to self-publish it so that we could really keep it in his voice um, because the reasons that it were, was there were so pure and people wanted it. They wanted it in their hands. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people are getting his book and, and these doctors start reaching out to me. Well, could we do this with cancer patients in our infusion center? Can we do this with patients with HIV in the Ryan White clinic? 
And so I'm like, well, I don't know. Let's see if we can, <laughs> right? So I start writing with all these um, different patient groups and I start working with clinicians of all stripes, like um, occupational therapists. They are awesome. They totally get narrative medicine. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, some nurses, um, lots of physicians um, and um, from emergency doctors to infectious disease. I mean, um, you know, the palliative care folks have, have a soft spot in my heart. Um, they, yeah. they really get it, but I start connecting to all these people. And I realize that so much of my own writing has been an act of narrative medicine. So of course I do like the, the thing that, you know, the type A personality does. And I'm like, I'm going to go do a professional certificate in narrative medicine. <laughs> so I'm already you know, thinking like, it in my brain. Like, how can I? How can I do that? Yeah, <laughs> it's an awesome program. And it was so cool because I'm in these classes and, you know, I'm a writer and I'm in there with um, a chaplain, uh, a pulmonologist, a cancer doctor, a critical care nurse, a cancer nurse, like just this cool collection of people. Um so um, you know, in the courses, I mean, I miss taking the courses because they just we're just so it showed me a whole other side of writing. Like we don't think uh, of our writing as being in service to others, but yeah. it totally can be right. So, and, and I will tell you when you're writing with, with patients and you're helping them to write their voice. So it's first person, but not from your perspective, mm-hmm. it is a masterclass in point of view. Right? Oh, I bet. <laughs> like words I wouldn't use, but I can't, if I change that, I materially change the story and I can't do that. And it has to be in their voice. They own this, they own this story. And that's part of the medicine part of it. Right. 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 It's, it's having the validation of the stories. And, you know, when I was, I was, I worked for two years sort of embedded every Wednesday in the cancer Institute and in the infusion center there Mm -hmm. so much so that, um, you know, the patients would be like, where's the crazy little writer lady. (laughs) So, you know, had to be gone for a week or something, Um, you know, and and so, you know, it became like so much of like what I was doing all the time. And I I was writing these and I would think very deeply because when we speak, we change tense without thinking about it. Um, if when we relate a story, our dialogue tags are all different and everything. So what do you change so that it's readable on the page? And what do you keep so that you are honoring that story that you have, right? Um, and so I would always bring the stories back and talk to the patients and ask them if they wanted to edit anything. Yeah. And only a handful ever wanted any edits. And it was usually like, I forgot to add this. <laughs> um, I was really amazed but the doctors who use these, right? And the doctors you're using these, like in the infusion center, they have um, palliatives work with patients on advanced directives, which is the care that you want to receive if you can't speak for yourself. And a lot of these get reduced down to like DNRs and really like just basic stuff, but these really, really savvy Um, palliative care physicians, two that I worked with, uh, Dr. Carl Gray and Dr. Monica Holbein, they were, they're just amazing at this. And they really get a rich sense. It was actually Dr. Gray, who I started with, he started reading these stories. And, you know, he was hoping to have all these clinical outcomes. And we're, we're excited, like, oh, what a cool merging. One day he calls me in my office and I actually went to our department secretary and she thought it was my doctor and it sounded urgent. She's like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Right. And I was like, no, no, no. It's the person I'm doing this study with. So I get on the phone. I'm like, Carl, what's up? And he's like, Renee, these stories, these stories are just so beautiful. I didn't know they were going to be so beautiful. You are going to make me cry. Yeah, it, everyday stories, right? Yeah, you know, bus drivers and you know, heavy equipment operators and truck drivers and homemakers and yeah. you know, but beautiful stories. I mean, it really pointed out how beautiful the ordinary is too. I mean, that was like when students say, "I don't have anything to write about." It's not the what, <laughs> right? Yeah, 
right? It's that voice you bring to it. It's it's the meaning you make from it. And, and these folks, like they had meaning in their lives, right? My friend, Cami Ostman runs the, the narrative project and she always talks about um, there's the what, and then there's the so what. And right. you are <laughs> inside this, so you're inside the so what. So I could talk about this project forever and I actually want right. to bring out afterwards and I want to talk more about it for a second with you, if you don't mind. Um, but sure. let's get back to you and your writing. How, yeah. you know what, let's, let's skip over a couple of my questions and then go into the craft tip. Um, yes. Could you give us a craft tip of some sort that has maybe this at its core? Yeah, for sure. So um, one thing, as an undergraduate, I studied with a wonderful writer named Susan Neville. And one of her first assignments for us was to sit in a public place and just write down dialogue. um, Because she wanted us to understand how dialogue worked. And like, nobody says like, pass the ketchup. Here's the ketchup, right? (laughs) Nobody says that. Pass the ketchup, John. Well, Mary, here's the ketchup. Yeah. Yeah. We don't put their names in every line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and mostly like, we're talking like at cross purposes, like, can you, can you give me a slice of pizza? Did you know today the mail didn't come? Right. <laughs> so um, yes. you know, really sitting and, and listening and capturing, you know, real snippets of dialogue is super, super helpful craft tip. The single best thing that helps me Um, is one that I use in revision. And I really feel like our own sentences tell us a lot about where we're at with a draft. And so I get, I have four different colored pencils usually. And I'm already tingling. I know, I love the (laughs) visual aspect of this. And when something isn't quite working and I can't suss out why, I just underline all the simple sentences in one color all the compound sentences in another color, all the complex sentences in yet another color, and then a final color for compound complex. And usually I, if something's not working, one of those is like dominating. Like if it's simple sentences, I'm like, I'm not really getting into it. Right. I'm just saying short declarative things about something. If it's too much compound complex, I probably haven't like clarified my idea and I need to like figure out what that is. And it's like syntax will tell you so much about your thinking. It's crazy, right? That is so interesting. I've never tried. I've never even thought to do that kind of highlighting work. Well, and it, like, okay, so you go back to that memoir, that's <laughs> like super linear and take a paragraph that you don't, that isn't really speaking to you and do the same thing. And you'll totally know why <laughs> it's not sitting with you. I'm sorry. We have to finish the interview. So I need to go back to what I'm working on and just do this. I have highlighters with me. I don't have colored pencils, but I have highlighters. That'll work. <laughs> but, yeah. Highlighters were great. <laughs> And when you do it with your students, it's so visual. And I usually just say one paragraph. Let's just do one paragraph that's causing you heartache. And it's amazing what they find. And the balanced ones will have a balance of all those kinds of sentences. And the balanced ones don't bother you. They're they're just there and they're they're living on the page. That is absolutely gorgeous. They found their equilibrium, right? Get back to the scientists. (laughs) Oh my exactly. I love this. Um, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way? Gosh, you know, there are a lot of things. Um, my dog has like an immense influence on my writing. First of all, if she's sitting here with me while I'm writing, it's usually a good writing day. We're both at peace. Um, she, she reminds me to take breaks. Um, you know, a dog gives you structure. (laughs) They have to be fed. They have to, you know, you have to do different things for them. So my dog actually plays a huge role. Um, and just like that emotional comfort, like writing is so solitary. Um, I, you know, that's definitely one of those things. Um, you know, I started teaching ballet again, um, after having surgery and teaching ballet ignited my essays in a whole different way. Like, I was, you know, I was back in the studio. I was smelling the smells. I was mm. hearing like the weird scratches of music. I was, um, you know, the feel of the floor, like Marley, which is the stuff they put on dance floors so that, you know, you don't like kill yourself oh. or fall over. Is it like it rosin a very- in a way? 
or is kind it- of like well you can use rosin but like the marley itself is it's just a very specific kind of flooring and it has like just a little give underfoot so like when you jump you don't kill your knees and hips and and so it has that like you have that feel again in the tactile fields of things you know um in, in a dance studio like it all came back in a very significant way so I'm like I have things to say <laughs> plus when you're teaching you get that gorgeous bonus that you have to rise out of the moment and be above the moment and trying yep. to describe what you want that student to find inside that moment and it just right. brings it all home for you as a writer right yeah. absolutely and you know my sweet spot as a dance teacher is the transition from soft shoes to point shoes. Um, and that put me right, right back in the moment of, of that transition for myself and Ooh. seeing the things that my students went through that were similar or different than, you know, when I went through, like now they can YouTube everything. They know all of each other. Um, they know all the variations because it, but they know them like, I know this part of Sleeping Beauty and that part of Swan Lake, like not the whole of Swan Lake or the whole. So you kind of have to work with them on like narrative structure, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's, it's really interesting, like some of the different, but some of the things just stay the same, you know, the, the judging of yourself in the mirror, the judging of yourself against your peers the weird way you understand, like, this is my friend, but also my competition, all those things. Right. And so I'm there watching it again as a teacher, helping to shepherd, you know, these young dancers through it. And also, you know, writing about it because it's coming flooding back. (laughs) Let's skip backwards for a moment because now I have to ask, I can't skip over it. What is your writing process? Because how are you doing all of these things? You are teaching literature, you're teaching dance, you are doing the work with narrative um, medicine. Like how, how does this all fit into your life? You've got a dog, it's, there's yeah, a it's, coronavirus, you know? Yeah, it's a very cluttered life. <laughs> and at any one time, one of those things can kind of jump to the fore and then receive mm. back. Like right now, mm-hmm. I haven't been teaching dance as much um, with with uh, COVID, um, especially in the early going, it just wasn't safe with having, yeah. you know, an autoimmune condition just was, yeah. you know, and then other things cropped up and filled a void. My writing process is interesting. Um, I try to be a very workaday writer and it doesn't always work out, but the voice is always in my head, get to the page. And so I just take a notebook with me everywhere. I always handwrite um, early drafts, almost I mean, my entire book started off as, you know, pen to paper drafts. Um, I admire people who can draft on the screen, but that's, it's not me. (laughs) So, um, and in a weird way, it kind of fits my life because, you know, you have 20 minutes here, you want to capture something, but I also do work in some very deliberate, like writing retreats. Um, Anytime they'll have me, I go to Barrel House's writer camp and, you know, just have four days of like just and I I bring my notebooks I may bring my computer too and sometimes I don't even turn it on because I'm just drafting once I have a draft it kind of follows me I kind of tote that around too right like I you know I feel like portable office (laughs) as a dancer I had a dance bag now as a writer I have a writer bag (laughs) so um you know and I I just um like, uh, like revision and I are good friends. It's like I, 20 revisions feels like the right amount. Usually. I mean, maybe less, maybe more. Um, but, um, a lot of times like the first, the first revision happens from notebook into word or, you know, mm-hmm. then I'm printing it out again so I can, you know, physically edit, that way and then and that's what you're toting around in the bag (laughs) right (laughs) lather rinse repeat right so um when I do allow myself and I try to do them pretty regularly um you know some sort of retreats I sometimes do them with other writers where we like go together and just like write for hours and then like have a like stupendous lunch and then write for hours and then hang out in the evening and do that for like three days (laughs) someplace that is not our hometown (laughs) For me, that's the, that's the best case scenario because then you can be honest. Then you have to be honest. 
Like right. they're writing, I'm writing. It's that container yep. of everybody else writing. Otherwise I have gone away on writing retreats before and just, you know, like watch TikTok. So great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like it, well, I went away for this writing retreat, but it was shark week and you know, I had to Wait. know about epaulette sharks, you know, and I, <laughs> yeah, and I, I felt I've a little there. blocked, right? No, but if your <laughs> friends are there and they're all writing, you don't get to be blocked. You just get to. Right. Yeah. Write. And, and so um, these ones that I've done in the summer have been really, really great because then I feel like all fall, those are the things that I'm revising. So then I try to do something like late fall, winter. So all spring I am revising and, and, you know, my, my writing process is taken on a very seasonal, seasonal, cyclical kind of cycle. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it would feel, feel wonderful. Okay. So, um, what yeah. I would love to ask you, what is the best book you've read recently? That one's a really hard one because, you know, you were like books, but okay. so one I have to like has been just following me around and I keep telling all of my writer friends and especially ones that teach writing Matt Salis's craft in the real world. Ooh, I haven't oh, read my it. gosh. Such really? a good book. Yes. I'm going to go insta, insta buy it. Yeah. So Matt is, um, you know, he's really taking to task the writing workshop and some of like our crazy notions about craft. Good. I take that to task frequently. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and he's really replacing them. And, you know, so Matt writes a lot about his um, adoptee story. He was born in Korea and then adopted um, by white parents in the U S and, and he grapples with that and he really presses on, you know, our, our, you know, our ideas when we come to the page and especially in workshop and we're reading other people's work about race, about gender mm. and gender, not just like male, female, but LGBT yes, all genders. So on. Yeah. yeah. Um, ableism is the first book where I ever read about ableism in the workshop. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, I, cannot, right? I cannot ever hear that discussion. I've never heard that discussion. Yeah, no, it, it, you don't have it a lot. So his book, but he's so smart about it. And it's, it's beautifully written. I mean, it's a craft book that's beautifully written. So I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, you know, so big fan of that. GT Hill um, was just on our campus and he has this wonderful memoir, Blind Man's Bluff. And he's just, GT reminds me that it's it's okay to tell a heartbreaking story and be ridiculously funny at the same time. And I love that about him. And he's such a giving, kind, sweet soul. Um, I I just can't even say enough things about the book and about him. Oh, um, awesome. I have an advanced copy of uh, Body Work by Melissa Fee. Is it Phoebus? Oh, Phoebus. I love her work. I love her work too, but body work is another one of these craft meets kind of memoir, kind of creative nonfiction, right? I'm dying. But it, dying. it also just hits, I mean, I don't know that if she's ever done work in narrative medicine, but like it hits the narrative mm. medicine. Like I'm like thinking about who at my institution I can get together to like bring her in and do like like a workshop with her and then have her do a reading because and with like doctors and other people right that's like in my head what I'm thinking you know we'll see if I can make it happen but I'm loving loving this book so um I'm hoping also I haven't done a book review in forever and I definitely have to do a book review of this book because it's so good it's just I'm gonna find out who her publicist is and see if I can get her for the show and get an arc too because I'm now I I didn't even know it was coming. Okay. So she has, if you get on Twitter, she posted something on Twitter about getting arcs. So find her. I will also buy the book. It's just that I wanted it. Right. Yeah. No. (laughs) You do this too, where like you get, you have like the book that you can mark up and then you have, and sometimes that's an arc and sometimes it's not. And then you get like a nice version because you like the book so much. You don't want to have like, have like your weird marked up copy. (laughs) I totally get that, but I don't. I love a bedraggled book. I just love my, my bedraggled, like every page is turned down. There's flippity flappity stickers everywhere. One book I'm reading right now, I just picked it up and the cover is curled because it got a little damp. I'm like, that is it. That's what I want. I want all my books. Right, like right. That. Those are the loved books, right? Yeah. Those are the yeah. ones like, oh. but I also love to have books signed by authors. And those, yeah. those are the ones like, I'm like, 
okay, I can't touch this one because they signed it. So I'm going to have that this other precious. one. And it's like the hot mess. I have book. done that. I have done that. Yes. Cause I don't want their precious signature in the hot mess book. Exactly. Or the sweet Thank things you. That they write. <laughs> I know. Thank you for those excellent um, uh, recommendations that I'm just going to go get. But um, <laughs> now can you please talk about Fierce and Delicate? Sure. So um, Fierce and Delicate. Um, wow. So the, the, you know, subtitle uh, essays on dance and illness really kind of tell you a, a lot mm-hmm. about what the book is, but you know, um, I started off my life, you know, really seriously training for a life in classical ballet. And, um, you know, as a ballet dancer, you know, even from a very young age, you're so tunnel visioned and you don't realize that you're tunnel visioned because it, you know, it gets, it gets into you, right. It's part of you. And so, um, I have, um, a love for dance for, and, and a deep connection to it. Um, but also like, because I came to this material later, I also could start to unpack some of the really concerning and strange things that happen, right? And so the first part of the book is just understanding that life I lived um, in these kind of discrete moments. Um, And some of them are short essays and some of them are long essays that tend to be sectioned. So I'm really thinking about discrete moments (laughs) for sure. Um, But um, then, you know, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and that really just is not a disease you can have and still pursue professional level dancing. Um, And so, you know, I start to unpack what my life is after that. Um, And then I start to write about how at age 36, my right knee has degraded enough (laughs) that I have to have knee replacement surgery, which is really strange because it's something that happens mostly to older folks. So people are looking at you like, what has happened in your life? But it also then gave me a bunch of mobility back. And so I start writing about, so I'm not the old dancer self and I'm not the in the throes of it illness, you know, self and in, you know, a chronic disease you're always dealing with your old you know, you're tangoing with it all the time. Right. And so, um, but it was different. And so when I started to realize I wasn't going to be in pain and I was going to be able to do a lot more, I decided to celebrate in the most dancer way ever. I go back to New York city and I enroll in American ballet theaters, um, certified training in their national training in their national uh, training curriculum. You are, and you so, are so type A. I love it. You're speaking right? my, you're speaking my language. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of, of that. I start, you know, um, I, I came back, you know, um, I, I did um, undergraduate degree in English with an emphasis in creative writing at Butler university. And then um, came to West Virginia, which is where my family is all from. Um, and um, I have, I didn't live here. I came back here a lot as a, as a young person um, and as an adult to, to visit with family. And so um, I find myself in the MFA program at West Virginia University, where I now t- teach and, and do other things and where both of my parents went to school, <laughs> right? Wow. So that, and then, you know, as I'm in the MFA program, um, one of my essays, um, was handed to the director of dance at the time. And she asked me in to coach some dancers. And then I, all of a sudden people are asking me to teach dance. So of course I have to go to ABT. I have to learn how to teach this. I can't just rely on my own training. Right? <laughs> so this is like weird kind of, you know, mishmash, um, and, uh, you know, so it, like dancing comes back in a really kind of significant way. Um, and one that I could not have, um, you know, even imagined. And the weirdest thing of all that happens, and one of my favorite uh, pieces to write in this book. So one day I get a call from the Dean of the College of Creative Arts, and he wants to know if I can meet with this guy Peter Franklin White, who claims to have been a dancer in the Royal Ballet, and he lives here in Morgantown. Well, it turns out Peter Franklin White wasn't just a dancer in the Royal Ballet. He was one of the founding members of the Royal Ballet. Crap, (laughs) and he's in West Virginia. 
he well he he died um a couple of years ago now but he was in his 90s and he started dancing with the sadler walls company which was the precursor to the royal ballet during the blitz (laughs) and he settled in morgantown because he was doing a lot of work in chicago and at the university of illinois and also in new york and morgantown was a very affordable in-between place so that was a good place to have a house Mm. And it's literally, it was literally up the hill from me (laughs) and like, nobody knew he was here. And I walked into his house and there's a picture of him with, um, Rudolf Nureyev and Margot Fontaine in Giselle, like it's this big picture. And I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) So, and Peter had this wonderful way of being a dancer and no longer a dancer at the same time. Um, and he would invite me over and we were, we were cataloging through his stuff. Um, it went to the, most of it went to the performing arts library in New York city. He had all these old books on dance that, that I, uh, have now, and I'm mm-hmm. super stoked about, <laughs> um, but you know, he would, some days we would have proper English tea. Some days we had champagne that was Peter. <laughs> Everybody should have a Peter Franklin White it's, in their life. It seems like you put yourself out there in a way that you are then contacted in, <laughs> and then have these incredible experiences because you have put yourself out there and then your life has changed because of it in a way. You know, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I, I guess, I guess so. I mean, I'm trying really hard in my life, I think just to be open to the possibilities, you know, that, that rheumatoid arthritis came so early, you know, I'm I'm a young person in my early twenties. I don't really know what to do with that. And I think the lesson that it, that has stayed with me is to be open to the possibilities. Right. So maybe that's it. I don't know, but people are fascinating. <laughs> you know, I, if you like I find me. you fascinating. I find you <laughs> fascinating. I cannot tell you how much I value our conversation today. And this is, this is a podcast that has, this is an episode that has just blown my mind wide open. And oh. in, and, and now I don't always expect that when I'm talking to guests <laughs> just about, you know, writing, I talk about writing all day, every day. Um, so Renee, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This has also been really, really fun. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. Mm-hmm.